This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically-minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. The life of Shakyamuni Buddha is the stuff of legend. And while some scholars like Stephen Batchelor are able to sift through the legends and give us valuable insights into the what we the times and context of a historical Shakyamuni. Mostly what we have is parable. And it's interesting to study the way in which parables are shaped over the years and to what use they are put in different times and places. Chinese were particularly preoccupied with lineage and continuity. So the parable of the Buddha's life was told in terms of transmission. And when we chant the lineage chart, it doesn't begin with Shakyamuni. We chant the names of legendary Buddhas of the past to maintain the sense of timeless transmission. Sort of like uh, the turtles that hold up the world. It's turtles all the way down, right? It's Buddhas all the way down. That sense of continuity was very important in that culture. When I look at um, the parables of the life of Shakyamuni, <coughs> I naturally tend to think of it in terms of a psychological parable. And to look at the way the story is told It's a way of reflecting on our own attitudes towards practice, what drives practice, what we imagine we're going to get from practice, and something about how practice actually unfolds. Now, the traditional story is that Buddha was raised a prince in a highly protected life. Raised so that he knew only security and happiness. Was shielded from <coughs> the suffering of the world outside the palace walls. 
And I think that, in one sense, we have a picture of childhood like that, at least an early stage of being protected within the walls of the family, being shielded by our parents from the reality of the world outside. And that growing up means having in some way to separate ourselves from that known world and venture out. Now, for many of us, family is uh, anything but that secure island of the, the parable and that um, difficulty intruded uh, long before we ever had to leave home. But one way or the other, we have to experience the shock of, of suffering. And it may be the shock of our parents not being who we thought they were or wish they were, of being unreliable or unpredictable or even frighteningly dangerous. In any case, Shakyamuni one day is said to have left the secure walls of the palace. And as he went outside, he encountered an old man, a sick man, a corpse, and then also saw an ascetic, a bhikkhu, living a life of total abstinence and poverty. And in the uh, translation of the um, transmission of the lamp I just took a look at, um, it says that Buddha, upon seeing these signs of these three figures, said, Sickness, old age, and death must be rejected. I must find a way. You know, I read that and you say, Excuse me? <laughs> Going to reject those things? Um, you have any problems with the law of gravity while you're at it? <laughs> but that's the net, you know, what psychologically what we see is this natural kind of recoil from a kind of traumatizing intrusion of the reality of impermanence, sickness, old age, and death. And I think that it says something very true to our experience that first response is to practice as an attempt to reject those things, to find a way to somehow annihilate the, that reality. And it's also interesting in a way that he takes them as, as immediate traumatic givens about the nature of the world. Uh, it's not a parable in which 
He says, my God, look at these poor, sick, suffering people. I've got to run back into the palace, sell the family jewels, give everything to the poor, set up a hospital, do everything I can to relieve their suffering. It's not directed at the people out there at all. Right? Nothing about it's that way to start. It's, oh my God, I can't deal with this. <laughs> you know, I, I've got to find a way to, to, uh, to escape or deal with this. This is too much. And we're told that he follows, at first, the training of two different ascetic uh, masters of his time. And although it's pretty complicated to try to understand what those practices were, in the sense of a parable, we could say he, fir he first attempts to completely control and dominate his mind, his thoughts and his emotion, create a practice where he will stop all thought and all feeling to become impervious to the sight that he just saw. And then after that, developing a asceticism of the body, trying to completely become insensitive to any um, pain or weakness or bodily need, starving himself nearly to death. Um, a kind of uh, I will endure the worst this body can inflict on me and I will master it. <clears throat> Yet one way or another he comes to see the, the failure of those projects. And that is uh, in itself something that may take us a lifetime of practice to do really see our own equivalent of those curative uh, fantasies and really give up on them. We are all involved in some notion of how we will control our mind and our body to make us impervious to suffering. And we may seek calmness and equanimity in meditation. We may seek health and eternal youth in uh, exercise and diet. We have all these schemes we have for thwarting old age and death. And we hold on to them as long as we can. But one way or another, uh, Shakyamuni um, took those as far as he could push them and in some way decided that this was, these were dead ends. And he sat down and resol tried to resolve 
the problem in a way, somehow from another direction. And it's said that after sitting, simply sitting quietly under the tree for six days, he saw the morning star rise and had the experience, that's me. Now one way I like to think of that psychologically is that he saw that star simply being what it was. That that star needed no improvement, no fixing. It just sparkled. It just was what it was. There was nothing missing. Nothing needed to be done. It was simply perfect in its existence. Now, in some way, that puts an end to the whole striving to control and fix and escape the suffering of our life. But it's not exactly to the point to be able to say, that's me, only when looking at a star. Uh, The real test, of course, is for Shakyamuni to go back and see the sick man, the old man, the corpse, look at them and say, that's me. That's the real end point of the practice, to see all the things that he was desperate to escape and see them as inescapable. And that himself is not separate from that great, changing, suffering mass of humanity. That's me. There's no place to stand outside of that world. Now, what did he teach as a result of this? He taught both the reality of suffering, but also the end of suffering. But that end of suffering is not the end of suffering that he sought when he started out. He did not find a way to become impervious to the suffering of the world. He found that suffering ends when we're not separate from the suffering of the world. And his Eightfold Path is a way of being in this world in a way which he speaks of as non-attachment, which really means not fighting against 
the reality of the world, not trying to make what's impermanent permanent. That's really the essence of the dilemma of attachment. Trying to make what's inherently impermanent somehow permanent. Now I think that the way these realizations are transmitted to us in many forms still hold on to certain fantasies of imperviousness or transcendence. Probably the original uh, community around uh, Shakyamuni was a group of people who adopted an ascetic life of homelessness and having no possessions, embracing impermanence through holding on, literally holding on to nothing of their own. This was a practice uh, that you could sum up as uh, if you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. And there's a certain model of practice that says give it all away, have no security in this world, become one with the poor and the destitute protect nothing and you will find freedom there. Now I think that as you may have noticed uh, we're not doing that. And the whole notion of lay practice, to my mind, is really based on a different understanding of what it means to come to terms with impermanence and to say, that's me, to the world of suffering. We do not go the route of having nothing, so we'll have nothing to lose. What we do is we say, we are in the world. We are not separate from this world of love and family and possessions and attachment and the desire for security to have all those things, to want all those things, is part of being human. Our practice is not to try to learn to live without all of them so life can't hurt us. Our practice is to face the reality of change and loss and to support each other 
in the midst of that reality. We love one another and we will lose each other. We love the life we make, the jobs we have, the art on the walls, the roof over our heads, and we'll have them for a while, and then we won't. We're not trying to run away from that reality. And we're not trying to extinguish desire so that we won't be so attached to the things of the world that we won't mind losing them. We'll be attached and we'll mind a lot. It'll hurt. But we realize that that's exactly what life is. The joy and the loss are a package. And we will not try to imagine we could have one without the other. Lay practice to me is a serious embrace of the world, of life as it is, of our humanity as it is. We're not perfecting ourselves. We're just saying, this is me.